The holiday season is here, and you might be asking yourself, what can I do to support this podcast? It's a great question. We at So To Speak, the free speech podcast, don't ask for much from you throughout the year. Your interest in issues of free expression are most certainly enough. But if you're looking to go that extra mile this holiday season, there are three ways you can show your support for this show. The easiest way is to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. As I've said before, reviews help us attract new listeners to the show. You can also share the podcast on social media. But when you do that, don't forget to tag at Free Speech Talk on Twitter so we can throw a like or retweet your way. If you want to support the podcast financially, please consider supporting the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, which, along with its supporters, makes this endeavor possible. You can give to FIRE by visiting thefire.org donate or by simply using smile.amazon.com and choosing the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education as your charity of choice when you do your other holiday shopping. Okay, now with that out of the way, on to our regularly scheduled free speech programming. Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Welcome back to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I'm your host, Nico Perino, and this week we're traveling back in time, way back in time. We're going back 100 years to 1917, a time when the world was at war, this was the First World War, and America had just entered the fray. We had also just passed the Espionage Act on June 15, 1917. The act, when passed, made it a crime to, quote, willfully cause or attempt to cause insubordination, disloyalty, mutiny, or refusal of duty in the military or naval forces of the United States, close quote, or to, quote, willfully obstruct the recruiting or enlistment service of the United States, close quote. Now, regular listeners to this podcast might recall that in June, we were joined by University of Washington School of Law professor and regular podcast guest, Ron Collins. We were joined by Ron to discuss the 100 years since the passage of the Espionage Act and how the act has been used to criminalize wartime dissent, restrict freedoms, and prosecute government whistleblowers. On today's show, we're actually once again joined by Ron as we take a deep dive into one of the first major free speech cases stemming from enforcement of the Espionage Act. That case is Mass's publishing company, V. Patton, and it's notable not because it created significant legal precedent, but rather because the now-revered judge Learned Hand wrote an opinion for the district court that was among the first judicial opinions to breathe free speech principles and ideals into American law. You see, at this time, and again, we're talking about 1917, the First Amendment meant very little as a bulwark against censorship. Those interpretations would take actually a few more years to develop. But in his statutory interpretation of the Espionage Act in the Masses case, 
Judge Hand read the act in a fashion similar to how future judges would review cases through the prism of expanded First Amendment protections for speech. Mass's publishing company was a left-wing magazine, I should say, and it was staunchly opposed to World War I and the compulsory military draft. Soon after the Espionage Act was passed in June 1917, it was seized upon by the Postmaster General to deny Massus's circulation through the mail. The edition of the magazine that was targeted featured tributes to people like Emma Goldman and Alexander Berkman, both of whom were jailed under the Espionage Act. It also featured letters from Englishmen who were imprisoned for their conscientious objection to fighting in World War I. And while there was no direct advocacy to its readers to break the law, the ethos of the magazine certainly revered those who did. On July 24, 1917, Judge Hand issued his opinion for the District Court of the Southern District of New York, granting a preliminary injunction to masses and barring the postmaster from prohibiting the magazine's circulation through the mail. The opinion was quickly appealed to the United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit, where it was overturned on November 12th, 100 years ago this month. Now, on November 6th of this month, of this year, the Second Circuit Court of Appeals commemorated the 100th anniversary of Mass's publishing company, V. Patton, by hosting a fun re-argument of the case in its ceremonial courtroom in New York City before a panel of current Second Circuit judges. Former Stanford Law School Dean Kathleen Sullivan appeared for Mass's publishing company, and First Amendment attorney Floyd Abrams, in an unusual role reversal to say the least, appeared for the government in the form of Postmaster Patton. We actually have the audio from the re-argument that we're going to play for you on this podcast. Now, after Ron and I set the scene for you, we'll play that re-argument audio, followed by a short reflection on the case by the three judges who heard the re-argument. Those judges are Judge Denny Chin, who presided, Judge Pierre Laval, and Judge Robert Sack. Ron and I recorded our conversation on November 7th at my Manhattan apartment. It was the morning after the re-argument that both of us attended. But if you'd rather skip Ron and I's conversation and jump right to the re-argument, you can fast forward, I think it's about 30 minutes. But for those of you who do want to hear Ron and I's conversation, Let's dive right in. Ron Collins, uh, thanks for coming back on the show. What a delight it is to be here. I want to understand why masses is an important case. The 1917 opinion by Learned Hand, uh, what is it? It's, it's wartime, all right? The Congress has just passed the Espionage Act. In June 1917. Yeah, June of 1917. Uh, there's this left-wing magazine um, called The Masses, uh, very critical of the war, uh, critical of... Uh, the um, of draft and uh, expresses that uh, critical view in um, articles, poems, and cartoons critical of the war. And in that context, the postmaster general refused to allow the masses to use the postal services on the grounds that those publications, the articles, the poems, the cartoons violated the Espionage Act. Now, if the Masses magazine couldn't use the mail, as a practical matter, they couldn't stay in business. This was vital to their existence. 
And so they went to court to get an injunction to prevent the um, postmaster uh, from barring uh, their use of the mails. Now, just as a clarification here, there being the postmaster general's authority for this comes from the Espionage Act? No, the postmaster, uh, well, a couple of places, uh, the Espionage Act, that was, but also the postmaster general says, I'm the one who makes decisions about, you know, what portions of the law apply to the mail and which, you know, we, the post, the postmaster general's office, we make decisions consistent with the law. So you couldn't mail obscene matters, all right? So that's a different statutory provision. Um, and so we, the postmaster, this is our judgment. You know, we look at the law and we make determinations. But right? what's the law here they're looking at? Is it the, the Espionage, Espionage Act. Act? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And but and, if that's the case, they could have thrown the publishers in jail if the articles were Actually, well, they couldn't have thrown them in jail. They could have referred the matter to the United yes. States attorney to do it. But the thing that they do, the domain that they rule over, is mailing. And that they didn't have to ask anybody um, but themselves. So I, there's I'm, no other government institution that's threatening them with prosecution in the same no. way Debs was threatened with jail time. No, no. Uh, although, in fairness to them, I, I assume that they probably had legal counsel before they made this decision not to mail. I mean, I think that's a fair assumption. Uh, so um, so this is how the case is set up. And the year is 1917. Now, let's be clear. At that point in time, free speech law as we know it didn't exist. The free speech revolution really starts in 1919 with Justice Holmes in three opinions, Schenck, Frowork, Abrams, Debs, or four opinions, um, and particularly with his dissent in the Abrams case. And then later on in 1927 with Louis Brandeis and his concurrence in Whitney versus California. So things don't, you know, the beginning of the modern era of First Amendment jurisprudence really doesn't begin until 1919. So in 1917, what little First Amendment law there was, was not at all sympathetic to free speech norms as we know them today. So to take a step back here, why wasn't the First Amendment this great bulwark against censorship at that time? What were, what were First Amendment scholars, what were judges and lawyers thinking about that amendment at the time? Or were they just not? Well, there were people... Let me, let, why, why, why didn't it matter? What happened in 1919 was that the First Amendment took on new life because it became part of judicial review. That is, there had been a lot of folks uh, opposing Anthony Comstock, Theodore Schroeder, the Free Speech League, and what have you, all prior to 1917. So that existed. But the courts had really not shown much sympathy to First Amendment principles other than there was um, the doctrine of prior restraint. And, and that is, is that... Yes, you could publish something, but thereafter, so you couldn't be prohibited. This goes to back to Blackstone. You couldn't be prohibited from publishing something, but once it was published, you could be pro, you could be prosecuted and what have you for the publication. And so that was that the, goes all the way back to Milton and yes, Mary Apogitica. Yeah, that's so, his argument so, as well. Yeah, so free speech law pretty much began and ended there, and it wasn't even always favorable to those principles, the principle of no prior restraint. 
But beyond that, at least in law, judicial law, it really didn't exist. Sure, some state courts might have done some things with their state constitutions, and sure, there were some common law opinions, but by and large, it wasn't part of the American legal mindset. So when Judge Learned Hand is deciding— Who's an this, esteemed judge at this point in the district court. Yes, federal he's, district court in New York. Uh, you would subsequently be elevated to the Second Circuit. Yes. And he's the one who gave that famous speech in Central Park, and I forget which year, it's when he said, like, when liberty dies in the hearts of men, no constitution, no law can save, can save it. it. Yes, and that was a part of something he gave in a, a subsequent lecture at Harvard, which is published in a book. But so, by the way, Learned Hand's wife— was friends with people at the masses. I mean, you know, I mean, they were, he was a progressive guy, and, and, and so was his wife. And so he knew these people, and their publisher, Max Eastman. I mean, he knew them. Um, so the case is litigated, um, and the arguments made in the case are not First Amendment. So Gilbert Rowe, a famous civil liberties lawyer, um, who's arguing on behalf of the masses, uh, and there's a book coming out in January about Gilbert Rowe, um, by Th- Eric Easton? Yes, Eric Easton, professor, professor at Baltimore. At Baltimore. Yes, uh-huh. so uh, Eric, there's a plug for your book. It's a great book, and uh, we're looking forward to its release. But uh, so Gilbert Rowe is there arguing on behalf of the masses, and they're arguing free speech principles, but they're not arguing First Amendment because there's no First Amendment decisional law to speak of that they can use other than the doctrine of no prior restraints. And so the case really comes... In the way it's presented and the way it's interpreted by Learned Hand is a statutory case, all right? He's interpreting the statutory provisions of the Espionage Act, all right? And so by most lights, this is going to be pretty boring sort of exercise, right? I mean, there's not many statutory opinions that you can refer to that have become a part of the great, if you will, um, uh, ethos of civil liberties in America. But what Brandeis does, interpreting provision after provision of the Espionage Act, is he reads them in a way consistent with free speech norms, consistent with the idea that there are certain democratic principles that must be honored if a country is to be a free country, if a country is allowed to um, allow its citizens to engage in uh, robust free speech. And so this, and this is a point that Vincent Blasey has made, uh, Professor Vincent Blasey at Columbia University has made time and again for a number of years, is that he breathes free speech principles, First Amendment principles, into his statutory interpretation. So formally speaking, formally speaking, this was a statutory opinion. Functionally speaking, it was a free speech First Amendment opinion. And in that regard, it, was, it proved to be a very significant one. Now, again, I read the opinion last night, and there were a couple of things that struck me. One, of course, it's a statutory opinion. So Learned Hand spends a lot of time parsing words within the Espionage Act. Uh, and in that sense, it seems like he comes in with the presumption that liberty shouldn't be violated and the burden is on the government to prove that this is what was the, what they're doing here was the intention of the Espionage Act, which I think is a good form of review in First Amendment. 
Amendment cases, but it, he seems to like try and wily his way out of reading it to give the government this authority. And of course, myself being a First Amendment um, advocate, a free speech advocate, you know, I sympathize with what he's trying to do. But if you listen to the speech from Wilson, for example, uh, you know, calling on Congress to pass the Espionage Act, it's clear that he was going after folks like masses. Now, Congress, when they wrote the Espionage Act, I understand there was some debate there uh, about going after speech. Uh, and so maybe wasn't written to go as far as Wilson did. But I, I just didn't get the sense that <sighs> Han's opinion was all that compelling given the law at the time. I, well, in fact, he, he, he cites no law in here. I mean, it, it's all uh, just interpretation of words yeah, in a five-page opinion. No, no, I understand. Uh, his opinion was reversed. By he, the Second Circuit, he, yes. Yeah. Uh, and yes, he did take liberties. There, there's no doubt about it. And there's something, if you will, very Machiavellian about it. Because it's really a First Amendment opinion disguised as statutory interpretation, right? Um, and remember, he's a district judge, right? The Supremes are the ones that, you know, if you will, announce new doctrines, not district judges. So uh, the act is brand new, right? So there's really no judicial precedent for him to cite. I'm the first guy on the scene, he says, right? Mm -hmm. Right? This is brand new. Uh, so I'm interpreting it. But there, there should be judicial opinions regarding how you should interpret a statute, yeah, yeah, yeah. but but one of them is is uh, first of all, you should avoid reaching a constitutional claim unless you have to. So he said, I did that, right? Uh, so yeah, this is statutory opinion, not a First Amendment opinion. So I didn't reach unnecessarily reach the constitutional question. Well, the reason you didn't reach it is because you read this statute very narrowly. You read it in a way consistent with which you thought were free speech norms, although those norms didn't exist in. Uh, decisional law by the Supreme Court prior to that time. Um, and he basically says that unless the advocacy here is a direct call, and I'm paraphrasing here, to unlawful conduct, unless, it has to be direct, right? It's not enough if it's indirect. It may be hostile. Um, it may, may be many things. But if we're going to say that it interferes with the draft, uh, that it's somehow prevents men uh, from fighting for their country, then the advocacy, he says, has to be direct. And so what came to be known as the direct advocacy test, all right, comes from this learned hand opinion. Uh, and for the time, it's a rather significant opinion. Now, if you had to say, could you read the Espionage Act in a way that the cartoons and what have you and the poems didn't violate the espionage, could you read it in a way without using the direct advocacy test? Yes, but the existing test at the time, the common law test, the First Amendment test, is what is called the bad tendency test. So if words or printed matter had the tendency, just the tendency to undermine the law, that was enough. So by that standard, all right, you could argue uh, that the masses magazine should be denied its mailing license. So there was good existing law then, uh, if he had followed that, if he had read the Espionage Act in light of the bad tendency test, he could have come up with a different result. But he used the, the direct advocacy test, and at that pinpoint in time, something incredible happened. 
and that is the birth of a new free speech consciousness, which we can talk about more. Yeah, well, he does talk at the end of his opinion. I guess the government's, I, I haven't read the brief, but making the arguments that it's sort of the ethos of the masses that creates this bad tendency to people for people to uh, avoid the draft or resist the draft. And if you look at the appendixes from his decision in which the, the four pieces from that publication that are at issue are at issue are published you know it's it reveres emma goldman and alexander berkman it taught there's another piece uh, radicals who were in jail for opposing the draft mm-hmm. right and they're talking about them as heroes and the argument here could be well revering them creates this bad tendency that might encourage other people to you know whatever so and one of the things that became apparent as we as this case was reargued before the uh, Second Circuit uh, last night with a panel of uh, Judge Laval, Judge uh, Chin, and Judge Sack, three judge panel, with Floyd Abrams and arguing on behalf of the um, the Postmaster and Kathleen Sullivan on behalf of the Masses Magazine. One of the things that became apparent, I think, to folks as they listened to the argument is that um, this wasn't an easy case, actually. I mean, when I say, well, poems interfering with the war, you know, um, cartoons interfering with the war. But, you know, we were at war. There were a lot of people very much uh, involved in this effort. And you have to get everybody on board, as it were, you know. And the idea is, is that, well, maybe the masses themselves, that magazine alone. But what if there were a hundred masses magazines? You know, if you kind of allowed that sort of thing, that kind of opposition to the war and what have you. And what if it caught on? And what if it actually did interfere? Are we willing as a country to take those risks in the time of war, while war is actually going on? Are are we willing to take those risks? And at least the first couple of times in the matter came before Oliver Wendell Holmes in Schenck and Frowork and Debs, and Debs is just an outrageous case. Holmes effectively says, no. We're not willing to take those risks. The First Amendment doesn't stand in the way. Um, there's a clear and present danger uh, that you have folks uh, like these starry-eyed leftists um, interfering with the war effort. So there's that idea of risk. And it's not, I mean, and, and what, what, to his credit, what Learned Hand says is, we as a free people, we who are committed to democratic principles, we are willing to take that risk. And as I like to say is, um, essentially what this is, another way of saying is, the safe life is not worth living, all right? If you're going to defend free speech principles, you have to be willing to take risks. If you're not willing to take risks, what's the purpose, all right? So in 1919, Learned Hand is basically saying through his direct advocacy. 1917. Test, uh, excuse me, 1917. Through his direct advocacy. Not unless it's direct. Not unless they actually go to where the boys are going to be drafted. Not actually unless they actually go and say, resist. I mean, wow, we have to go that far down the line? I mean, that's quite a risk, right, uh, to take. But So it's this idea that somehow democracy and liberty are related to risk-taking, all right? And so that's what we see in 1917, and it's an idea that caught on, and Holmes 
ran with that idea, although in a different way. Yeah, there's a passage here at the end of his five-page opinion. The defendant's action was based, as I understand it, not so much upon the narrow question whether these four passages actually advocated resistance, though that point was distinctly raised, as upon the doctrine that the general tenor and animus of the paper as a whole were subversive to authority and seditious in effect. And here's the critical line. Holmes is saying, I cannot accept this test under the law as it stands as present. The tradition of English-speaking freedom has depended in no small part upon the merely procedural requirement that the state point with exactness to just that conduct which violates the law. It is difficult and often impossible to meet the charge that one's general ethos is treasonable. Such a latitude for construction implies a personal latitude in administration which contradicts the normal assumption that law shall be embodied in general propositions capable of some measure of definition. Now, when he's talking here about the exactness, and I think you're bringing this up too, the point at which someone says to engage in the urges someone else to engage in unlawful action. We don't get that standard up until 1969, right? Bradenburg versus Ohio. So in that sense, Judge Learned in Hand is, what is it, 52 years yeah. ahead of his time? Do you think, and you mentioned- By the way, when you introduced that, I think you said Holmes and meant I meant hand, yes, right. the two okay. H's. <laughs> right, right. Uh, but their lives, as a way of transitioning here, are inextricably tied because one gets the sense that Hand has already concluded that he wants to expand free speech jurisprudence, perhaps to the First Amendment. And we can sort of make that suggestion or have that understanding because Hand met Holmes on a train. Right. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. After this decision. After so after decision, this decision. It went to the Second Circuit, was yeah. struck down. After this decision. Yeah, he's reversed by uh, the Second Circuit. An opinion that if you read, cites court precedent almost every paragraph. Lewis Publishing Company v. Morgan, Smith v. Hitchcock. Uh, it's just a very different opinion than Hans' opinion. Yeah, and and so um, the opinion comes out. Um, it's reversed. Um, that's the end of the case. Um, and Learned Hand um, is uh, traveling uh, from uh, on a train, uh, the New York-Washington, D.C. corridor, mm-hmm. And, Which you traveled on to get here to New yes, York. Yes, <laughs> yes. And as Fortuna would have it, Oliver Wendell Holmes is there. And they get talking, and they get talking about the masses' opinion. And remember, up to this point, Holmes was really not a First Amendment person at all. He'd written an opinion called Fox versus Washington, a very a grudging opinion uh, that had very little sympathy for First Amendment principles. So prior to this point, um, the First Amendment and free speech And Holmes principles- was no friend of liberty. I mean, he, he famously said, and I'm paraphrasing here, you know, if you want to take the road to hell, I'll pave it. Oh, yes, yes. No, no. And, 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 um, He's a big uh, fan of democracy and yeah. just whatever the people choose. Yeah, is what he they had want this Darwinian perspective. And, you know, and uh, so in any event, they're on the train and they're talking about the, the masses' opinion and what have you. And, and, um, and all of this is percolating in, in, um, in Holmes's mind, and thereafter they have some correspondence, which is how we know about it. Um, and then more recently, Thomas Healy has written a whole book, uh, in large part about Holmes and Brandeis and the evolution. Of- it's called The Great Descent: How Oliver Wendell Holmes Changed His Mind and Changed the History of Free Speech. In yeah, America. and and so Hand had he got the wheels in Holmes's mind turning, and so let's just be clear: Did they meet in 1917? Or was it 1918? Or I 
It's obviously before yeah. 1919. Yeah, I, this side, this time, or not the not summer sure of 1919. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So the um, so let's be clear. Learned Hand's opinion was reversed by the Second Circuit. Since then, up to this date, it's been cited by very, very few courts. Um, yeah, Judge Robert Sack last night said it was like something like 30 courts have cited the district court opinion and the circuit court pit opinion in totality. Like and most of them cite the circuit court opinion. Yes. Second. So it's an opinion that, legally speaking, has had very little influence. Um, and, and so you think, well, why then is Learned Hand this so revered figure in free speech? Uh, well, for two things. First of all, um, when the opinion came out, Zachariah Chafee uh, had written about it and then written about it in the Harvard Law Review and elsewhere and had great praise for it. And the reason I mentioned Zachariah Chafee, this Harvard Law professor. He wrote a book in 1920 called Free Speech. He wrote one in 1941 called uh, Free Speech in the United States. Yes. And Zachariah Chafee is also a close friend of Oliver Wendell Holmes. And so he's the fellow that's, if you will, taking the message of Hand and Holmes and, pardon the expression, taking it to the masses, right? <laughs> he's writing in the New Republic. He's writing the Harvard Law Review and other places. He's writing books. And so what happens is that Hand's test never becomes the law to this day. I mean, at least the test as he announced it, of uh, variations of it, particularly in Brandenburg, we see uh, rising. Holmes developed his own test, but what's important about what Learned Hand did is that the spirit of the First Amendment comes alive, is born in 1917. And that See, Ron, I read this opinion and I don't feel that spirit. I yeah. feel like a bland, boring, five-page statutory interpret. It's not like Enri Anastopolo that you and I talked no, about no, a couple no. well, months ago. Because it didn't have the rhetorical verb and eloquence of a Holmes, what have you. Uh -huh. But that idea... Or a black, you yes. go black. Yeah, uh, we must not be afraid to be free, you go black. But that <laughs> idea, that principle, all right, that somehow free speech is linked, inextricably linked to democratic government, mm. that free speech, even in wartime, must be t tolerated unless it poses a direct threat, all right, um, to the war effort. This was a radical idea. Now, in fairness... Learned Hand depended on Zachariah Chafee and Oliver Wendell Holmes, if you will, to carry the torch, all right? But the spark, all right? He was it, the first domino. Yeah, the, the, the spark happens in 1917. Now, it may be that the brilliance, to continue the metaphor, continues with Holmes, all right? But what got Holmes thinking, as far as we can tell, is Learned Hand and what Learned Hand had done in 1917. And this is all the more ironic, given the fact, ironic that Learned Hand became this great figure in free speech, First Amendment law. I mean, it wasn't a First Amendment opinion, but he's a great First Amendment figure. And later on, when uh, Learned Hand is on the United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit, there's a case called Dennis versus United States that comes be before them. And he writes this opinion that is very free speech hostile and the supreme court adopts his views when the case comes before them and so if you stop in the late 40s and early 50s and i think dennis versus united states was 1951 the supreme court opinion i think um i can look it up yeah here while you're but finishing so your thought. so if if you stopped at that point in time 
you would think yes, that... Yes, it was 1951. Yeah, you would think that Learned Hand, far from being a free speech hero, was, you know, a free speech, if you will, critic, a free, you know. And, and then, later in his career, right, um, when he gives a speech at Harvard, which is then published as a book, he gives a very, very cabined view of judicial review when it comes to, when I mean, he was critical of Brown versus Board, all right, and, and that the judiciary really shouldn't get involved in a lot of questions involving civil liberties. Notwithstanding all of that, notwithstanding Dennis, notwithstanding what he, the speech he gave at Harvard, which was then published as a book, notwithstanding all of those things, Learned Hand still walks away as this great persona in free speech history. And as I said, it was the right man, the right time, the first time, or the first significant time. He needed Zachariah Chafee. He needed Oliver Wendell Holmes. But he, Learned Hand, was the spark. Now, just this note, just this note. He did that in the context of political speech. Imagine if a case had come before him, one of Anthony Comstock's prosecutions involving obscenity. Imagine that if Gilbert Rowe, the noted civil liberties lawyer, was instead Theodore Schroeder, the lawyer from the late 19th century from the Free Speech League. Imagine that Theodore Schroeder, instead of Gilbert Rowe, was arguing a case. Imagine that the case, instead of involving the draft, was involving sexual expression. Imagine Anthony Comstock, who also was one of the people who was responsible for what was mailed and what wasn't mailed, Mm -hmm. right? Imagine Anthony Comstock says, well, I refuse to allow this or that magazine to send their sexual expression to males. And imagine if that same case had come before Learned Hand, and Learned Hand did a matter of statutory interpretation involving sexual expression. Because really, it's not until 1957 in Roth versus United States that sexual expression begins to see has some First Amendment protection. It took that long. Because the Postmaster General was preventing sexual expression from being mailed through the Comstock Comstock Act, things, uh, you know, articles about contraception and abortion were prohibited. What was it, 1873? Yes, yes. So, you know, what I found fascinating is if Learned Hand could do this in 1917 with political expression, what would have happened if in 1917 he did the same thing with sexual expression? Would Holmes and his colleagues thereafter be willing to run with the idea, or would they have to wait until 1957 when um, Justice Brennan uh, writes the opinion for the court in Roth versus United States? Well, Dennis v. U.S. involved political expression as well, you know, relating to the Communist Party. So, Mm -hmm. you know, how did he land on the other side of this line in that case? You know, this is another story. I mean, maybe we have to have Dennis versus United States Uh re-argue, which actually may not be a bad idea. We can can revisit uh, Alerted Hand now as a uh, circuit judge instead of a district judge. But it was amazing. So this man in 1917 made a very significant contribution to political speech, democratic theory, uh, and liberty. It was the spark that, that caught on uh, in 1917. And just as a matter of fantasizing, I would have thought, what would have happened if instead of being political expression, it was a case involving sexual expression, instead of Gilbert Rowe arguing it was Theodore Schroeder, how would it have played out in time? Mm-hmm. Who knows? Yeah. Well, if our listeners want to learn more about this case and read the briefs and the opinions from uh, 
opinion from Judge Hand, of course, at the, the, the district court, and then Judge Rogers, right, at the circuit court, they can do that at Fire's First Amendment Library. Just click on the 1A Library tab at the top of the website and go to the Special Collections section. It can be found there. And if you want to learn more about the story behind the First Amendment dominoes starting to fall, first with Learned Hand, then with uh, uh, Holmes, and then with Brandeis, uh, you can read Thomas Healy's book, The Great Descent, how Oliver Wendell Holmes changed his mind and changed the history of free speech in America. It could, it could be rewritten to say how Judge Learned Hand changed Oliver Wendell Holmes's mind and changed the history of free speech in America. Well, yeah, there were other figures. I mean, in fairness. Zachariah Chafee, of yeah, course, yes. Yeah, that, that were weighing in. And uh, Holmes, you know, Holmes, I think, always had his eye on history and legacy. And it may well have been, he said, you know, to himself in 1919 or in 1917, you know, Learned Hand is on to something here, and this could really be something that I should uh, invest yeah. in. And he did, and he was, and he was right. Yeah, well, he's got a couple of good decisions, at least for us First Amendment advocates. But he, he was—he also wrote the opinion in Buck v. Bell, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, Three generations of yeah. imbeciles is enough. On the other hand, again, to be fair, Louis Brandeis signed on to that opinion. People forget uh, progressives uh, were. Um, uh, Advocates for eugenics at that time. Yeah, yeah. And so, but it was a different different time. But notwithstanding that, uh, Holmes' stock remains um, quite impressive. And in fact, there's a brand new book by Collins and Scoper called The Judge, 26 Machiavellians, that speaks about this very point. But that's another subject. Well, what, no, when does that book come out? Because I want to It's out. It. It's out from Oxford University Press, uh, The Judge, 26 Machiavellian Lessons. Uh, and mm, there's a Just whole, a big plug. What's it about? It's basically a modern day version of Machiavelli's Prince, uh, but it's directed to judges. And it says if the name of the game uh, is maximizing power, uh, if if judicial interpretation at the Supreme Court level is really no more than partisan political decision-making, if that's true, not that it is true, but if it is true, then the name of game is to maximize power. And so in this book, there are 26 Machiavellian lessons on how Supreme Court justices can maximize power, and it's devilish. Oh, that's fascinating. Because Machiavelli originally wrote The Prince for a prince on how to maximize power. In this case, we're talking about judges. So we're going to transfer over now to the argument that happened yesterday. What was the date yesterday? It's November 7th? 6th. 6th. Um, and we're going to hear the esteemed Floyd Abrams and the esteemed Kathleen Sullivan argue before a three-judge panel on the Second Circuit uh, in downtown Manhattan at 40 Fulton Square. Uh, judge Denny Chin is uh, the chief judge and Judge uh, Pierre Laval and Judge Robert Sack are also hearing. And can you just set the scene for us, Ron? Because we're only get, we're not going to play the preamble or the the postscript discussion, but we're just going to play the re-argument. What are the bounds for this argument? Because they don't need to argue just with existing precedent in 1917. They can use subsequent. Yeah. So they they have to use the factual record. So that remains the same. Which can be found on our website yeah. at thefire.org. Uh, and the main thrust has to be the law as existed in 1917. So, you know. But they were also given the liberty, the, that is the counsel of Floyd Abrams and Kathleen Sullivan, on um, using subsequent opinions, um, uh, Holmes' opinions, Brennan opinions, Robert Court opinions, for illustrative purposes, you know, right? To suggest how the law, statutory law and First Amendment law, should be interpreted. So they had this leeway. And what was incredible is while they were making this case, 
um, in the United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit, uh, and all made possible by the Chief Judge Robert Katzman, uh, who introduced the event. Uh, right off uh, to the side of uh, where the judges are sitting, there was a bust, yes, of Lord Hand. So yeah. it was really quite a moment. And it is in that context that their arguments begin. And it, it started with Floyd Abrams arguing on behalf of the government, which had lost below. Yeah, the appellant. Yeah, and followed by Kathleen Sullivan representing the masses. The appellee. Okay, so we'll turn it over to uh, the Honorable Judge Denny Chin to introduce the case and then uh, Floyd Abrams to make the argument for the government. Understand the parties are here in Massis Publishing Company versus Patton, and so we'll hear from counsel for um, the appellant. Chief Judge Shannon, may it please the court. This is an appeal from an order of the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York entering a preliminary injunction against the Postmaster of New York, barring him from refusing to allow the mailing of an issue of what the court referred to as a monthly revolutionary journal called the New Masses. In considering the appeal, uh, we urge the court uh, to bear two things in mind at the start. First, uh, we are at war. Uh, it is a war in which over five million soldiers have already died a war in which over 40 million soldiers and civilians have died and been wounded. Uh, and it is a war in which our country, six months ago, uh, entered. Uh, so it is- does the, does the right of dissension become a casualty of war then? I wouldn't say a casualty. I would say that in setting balances and in setting standards, that the fact that a war is on and the fact that speech can sometimes have a deleterious effect on winning the war is something that this court can quite properly take into account. Uh, when Judge Hand, for example, concluded, notwithstanding his final judgment in the case, that the effect of the speech at issue here would be to benefit the enemy we think that is of relevance. It should be of relevance to the Judge Hand say uh, essentially that sure they could do it under the war powers. Congress could do it under the war powers, whatever they are. But they if they wanted to do it under the war powers, I suppose they would say what you just said and said, We're doing this under the war powers, friends, whatever they are, and Judge Hand would say, Well, that's fine. Uh, I don't think that Judge Hand uh, was of the view, I don't read him as having said, that, that the government was not to be heard to make an argument that because it was a war on, that, that somewhat different standards ought to be applied. He didn't agree with the standards that uh, we argued below, 
uh, but, but he didn't deny for a moment the relevance of the fact that we were at war uh, and the relevance of the proposition that at war one has to have a way of looking at a case such as this. How did these cartoons, this poem, how did they undermine the war effort, if they did? Well, the cartoons, according to uh, Judge Hand, and we agree with much of what he said by way of his characterization of them, he said they, that the, the publication itself was a virulent attack on the war and the laws that have been enacted uh, to uh, bring it uh, to its conclusion. He said that, uh, and, and as to issue after issue, that the effect of the publication of the cartoons and of the text uh, would likely be uh, to make it more commonplace, more likely that soldiers would not fight or, or might be tempted not to fight. He didn't find the temptation or the tendency sufficient to carry the day, but he never denied for a moment that, that, that the centrality of the proposition that because we were at war, that was a relevant factor to be considered. Isn't the, isn't the, the law very favorable to you here, here in 1917 when we're judging this case? Isn't the law uh, substantially and clearly on, on your side? Hasn't the, hasn't the Supreme Court, isn't it accepted doctrine that uh, the only thing forbidden by the First Amendment is a prior restraint? And, and isn't, it, isn't the Second Circuit in its prior opinion correct in saying that this is not a prior restraint when, when um, uh, other channels of distribution have been made available to the, are, are, are not impaired uh, um, by the, by the well, postmaster's order? I, I'm ready to sit down. I, I, I couldn't agree more. Well, you're uh, here to persuade the, us. The law, and it's, well, it I, to I, me I, there I, are stronger arguments. I'm, I'm starting one. out ahead of the game, I, I, I think. Um, I, there's, there's another factor, I think, that, that ought to be considered other than, by way of background, than, than it's a war. I mean, the, the issue here is not whether someone goes to jail. The issue is here is whether the postmaster has the authority to say that this publication should not be transmitted by mail. And indeed, there was authority as of, two, as of 1917, that, that uh, when the postmaster so acts, and in context far from war, that, that it was not to be treated as a prior restraint, that it was not to be treated as violative of the First Amendment, uh, but as the government making a decision to protect the public. You spoke about the First Amendment. And he talks, my colleague talks about the First Amendment. Is this a First Amendment case? Does this apply the First Amendment? I think it's fair to say this. Uh, Judge Hand did not apply the First Amendment. Uh, I think to give Judge Hand his due, he was taking into account First Amendment-like considerations and the manner in which he interpreted the statute. Uh, 
but he certainly did not rely on the First Amendment. He didn't even mention it in connection with... He, di he didn't even mention it. This, this is going great. Uh, 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 and and uh, not only didn't, didn't he mention it, but, but, you know, he really went very far down the line in offering an interpretation of the statute, qua statute, which I think is wholly unacceptable as a matter of statutory interpretation. Essentially, he said that, um, that um, an area of law is entrusted to an administrative agency and the administrative agency interprets it, um, the court's view of the issue takes precedence over the view of the administrative agency. That's what he did. That's what uh, he did, I, and that's I what he said. He came, he, he came close to I don't think he's quite as candid as you. as an abstract uh, uh, honor. But he clearly but, espoused it. The postmaster, uh, the postmaster I, finds this problematic, does not find it problematic. The court does. It's, I mean, I would, I, I would recharacterize what he's done as, as this uh, without a shred of evidence or looking at uh, congressional testimony uh, uh, or anything from Congress other than the words of the statute without anything more than that and because his view was Congress should not be read to have written a law with these unacceptable results in terms of what we might call the First Amendment. I still don't understand how he could then begin and end his opinion, saying essentially, hey, Congress can do this. Sure they can, but they can't do it under the postal yeah. power. They have to do it under the war power. And I make no question of the power of Congress to establish a personal censorship of the press. Let them do that rather than let, make me read this statute to do that. Yeah, but I, I mean, another way to say that is what he was saying was Congress hasn't done it, not, not the it, but Congress not just wasn't using the war power. I mean, Congress adopted a statute with certain language. It is the Espionage Act. I mean, it is the law which, which is supposed to protect the country. The word war is in the statute. Uh, the, the, the very statute we're relying on is a statute which, which I would not argue that this court was constitutional, but for the war. To what extent must we defer to the Postmaster General? If we do, well, there are First Amendment uh, concerns, must we uh, uh, defer to what, what he's done? The way I would say it, Your Honor, is that you should give great deference to the executive branch of which the Postmaster is one. I mean, the, the decision on the stipulated record as it comes to this court about who made this decision and who recommended this decision uh, included people from the armed forces as well as from the postmaster side of things. And, and it's our view that you ought to view this. But if in their collective judgment um, uh, uh, they uh, conclude that, that 
these materials are not mailable, but, but we believe that um, First Amendment rights are violated, do we just uh, give in and, and, and follow along blindly? If you believe First Amendment rights have been violated, uh, you have to do what you have to do. Uh, what you would be doing is certainly not, as Judge Sack has pointed out, certainly not what Judge Hand said he was doing, since he made no reference to the First Amendment at all. This court has, uh, a, this court has license as <coughs> ability to take into account, uh, as uh, to the extent that it's persuasive, the post-1917 jurisprudence on the First Amendment. So while the pre-1917 jurisprudence on the First Amendment is very favorable to you, um, uh, how do you argue against, um, against aspects of the post-1917 jurisprudence that we might find persuasive? Because you need to persuade us uh, not to, that, that that jurisprudence is not persuasive against your case. What I would urge on you is not to adopt the post-1917 jurisprudence, or at least not to adopt it wholesale. Uh, I understand that there has been great controversy, academic and otherwise, through the years about the then prevailing view uh, that when one looks at this through First Amendment eyes, that you look at the, quote, natural and probable tendency and effect of certain uh, uh, speech, which is a much less protective standard Why is than, right, finish, finish your than it's a less protective standard that, than clear and present danger, for example, or, or some of the other later uh, articulations uh, of it. Uh, but uh, nonetheless, uh, or it, it, it seems to us uh, on our side of the table that during war, with respect to uh, threats to the ability to carry on the war in a successful way, that, that the natural and probable tendency test, notwithstanding that of course it risks a level of First Amendment danger, uh, is better put and more thoughtfully set forth and more nuanced than any of the newer articulations. Well, the Brandon, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, Brandenburg, go ahead. The Brandenburg opinion um, um, uh, uh, puts forth the proposition that um, uh, in order to be subject to suppression or punishment, uh, speech must actually incite, uh, it must go further than, than advocating or encouraging illegal conduct, it has to actually incite. Um, you, you can't prevail under that doctrine. Uh, why should we, uh, what is your argument against My that? argument is, first of all, Brandenburg is not a war case. And a lot of the cases between 1917 and today have nothing to do on their face with war. And our argument is that they shouldn't. The fact that you can't falsely cry fire in a crowded theater has nothing to do with the situation here when people are dying on the battlefield and are less likely to prevail on the battlefield uh, if uh, a less rigid standard were offered. I mean, that, 
I don't have any doubts that that. Why, why is that the case? I mean, how does the standard we apply affect whether people are going to die on the battlefield? Because I think the more permissive standards, the more pro-First Amendment standards, as it were, in more recent years, have been standards which came about in circumstances of student unrest on campus uh, and a variety of other situations where the security of the state itself was not at risk. The Pentagon Papers case, wasn't that about uh, a war? Weren't we in a war? Wasn't that the argument of the government? We're in a war and you're putting our... our uh, the Pentagon Papers case should have been decided the same way under 1905 statutes. <laughs> the Pentagon Papers was a prior restraint case. Well, isn't this a prior restraint case? This is a very modest prior restraint case. <laughs> this allows the speech to go on it allows everything to occur except not to put this in a mailbox. Except permitting it to reach the public. Yeah. I'm sorry? Except permitting it to reach the public. Well, it's I not mean, the only ma manner of distribution. Uh, and FedEx? How else are you going to? I know they say railways and express companies. Oh, you, do you think that, that the masses is, in fact, going to be? distributed uh, successfully through the use of railway. I think there's evidence to the contrary. They're saying you cannot say this, period. Well, it is not saying you can't say it. If you can get up in a park, if you can walk around and hand out leaflets, if you can walk into a courtroom and make arguments. Uh, I mean, they, they I agree that, that uh, barring the use of the mails substantially uh, inhibits their ability to distribute. It does. Of, of course, it does. And and of course, and of course, any of the restrictions or or any of the more permissive uh, rulings in the years after uh, 1917 uh, uh, allow more speech and put on the scale a much more difficult burden for the government to meet, uh, the effect of which, our position is, the effect of which is that in a war situation is more risky than it should be. That, that if we're starting fresh here tonight and you are free to take into account more recent jurisprudence, that you're free as well to consider the potential harm of that most recent jurisprudence in circumstances what, what in which in a, lives are at stake. In a situation like we are today where the war on terror is, is going on for many, 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 many years, um, you would make the same argument that we're still in a state of war and, and, and therefore um, we should tolerate greater restrictions on speech? I really wouldn't in part because on one level we're always at war and, and I mean if, if war becomes the rule and not the exception then we might as well just have one standard. But, but it seems to me that where, where you have and here I think we, we can fairly go back to 1917, where, where, where you have the great war going on, enormous casualties occurring, enormous turmoil uh, on the streets, 
that that uh, to say that proof has to be adduced with almost some level of certainty be, before there can be any limits uh, goes m much too far. I, I would cite to you a beautiful line from a, a great lawyer named Abraham Lincoln, who said when he was president, why must I shoot a poor boy who deserts and not touch a hair of the wily agitator who induces him to do so. That is a, a, a perfectly fair and persuasive, I think, way to look at a wartime situation in which the, the risks of indeed uh, some poor boys deserting, we have seen a recent case uh, a very recent case in which that, that occurred. So th that reality, that Lincoln-esque reality, is a, is, is a very real one, which I think you ought to Looking take into account. post-17 jurisprudence, um, uh, a lot of, of admiration was given to the standards uh, adopted by uh, Justice Holmes and Justice Brandeis in their dissents in, in, in Abrams and uh, uh, um, and Whitney, um, uh, but if we adopted those, if we adopted those as the rule of of this court, it would be quite favorable to your side, would it not? Because um, uh, Brandeis and Holmes uh, allowed for the possibility of of intervention, allowed for the possibility of suppression of speech or punishment of speech. Um, either in the circumstances where it presented a clear and present danger or where it was intended to. And would you not be able to, um, to defend the position that in this case, uh, even if one had doubts about its accomplishing a clear and present danger, it arguably, as a question of fact, was intended to, to, to uh, present a danger? Yes, and, and, and indeed, uh in this case, one can look at the language itself uh, as the best way of determining the intent. In fact, that's the only thing we have before us in this case. What is the language uh, of the uh, New Masses articles? And the new, uh, masses, new Masses agreed, as I understand it, to circulate without the four articles and without the four cartoons, and the post office said no. Now, isn't that uh, they're going after the masses, not after the, 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 the contents? Very, by the way, very, very tepid con uh, articles. I mean, they, they, they're pablum. But having read them, can't they uh, circulate without that? If they had made a submission again, uh, I, I can't tell you what the postmaster, who's not here today, would have done. Uh, they made certain offers. There are always, always language in the middle of cases in which people propose things when they think they're going to lose. Uh, and, 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 and that is very much our, our situation here. Sometimes that should be done more than it is. But uh, <laughs> the, uh, the, there's the, 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 the whole point of this was to shut them down. If you take Abraham Lincoln's glorious words, uh, 
at their face value, you're saying that so long as there's a boy out there who might be killed as a result of these words, these words can be prevented. Do you agree with that? Do I think that Congress could constitutionally pass such a statute? Yeah, I do. I, I'd like to quote from you in my remaining time a line from the Schenck case, which is just a few years later, in which Justice Holmes said the following, when a nation is at war, many things that might be said in times of peace are such a hindrance to its effect that their utterance will not be endured so long as men first, that no cost will regard them as protected by any constitutional right. So I'm well aware of post-1917 law, but I think we, we should take account, even as we consider this almost as an essay rather than a juridical proceeding, we should take account of the reality that words sometimes do real harm and that in times of war, that's, the, that's not enough, but, but that's on the scale. It is not as if one can throw out the fact or ignore it. That's why lawyers make that kind of a judgment. You can't throw it all out. That's why the clear and present danger and the subsequent ones were trying to... to I don't think Justice Holmes was throwing it out either in Schenck, but I'll return. Don't, don't, don't complain about the amount of time you're getting. You've never had that much time at that brush at, ever. That's, that's, that's so true. I'll never complain again. Thank you. We'll hear from your colleague. Sullivan. May it please the court. I'm here to represent the masses. And I'd like to begin by saying that the First Amendment was in the background of the decision you should affirm of Judge Hand. And it was there because he spoke of the need for free expression to flourish in order that we be a democratic government that rules by the authority of the people and not through suppression. So Judge Laval, I'd like to begin by saying that the First Amendment is not limited to a ban on previous restraint. It is also our founders' commitment that we would not have, as absolute monarchs did in England, a rule against seditious libel. No one remembers the Sedition Act of 1798 as a good thing in our tradition. It's remembered better for the fact that it was extinguished in 1801 and that President Jefferson pardoned all those convicted under that act because we do not, in our First Amendment tradition, allow people to be punished or here silenced uh, through, because they have brought the government of the United States into odium or contempt or challenged what about the government or its officials. Go ahead. What about when we're at war? Hardships are a part of war, and is it unreasonable to rein in uh, uh, the right of, of people to express themselves, particularly when, there will, when it may hurt the war effort? So, Your Honor, we don't here question the power of Congress to enact restrictions on activities, including speech, that actually interfere with the war effort. But Congress wrote a narrow statute here, and my clients did not violate it. And it's important to remember that Congress considered and rejected other versions of the statute that would have spread to seditious or treasonable activities, and that's not the statute they wrote. The statute they wrote prohibits making uh, uh, 
well, it, it prohibits as non-mailable matter things that would violate the following provisions. Statements that are willfully made false reports or false statements with an intent to interfere with the operation of success of the military. My clients cartoons description, describing conscription as the enemy of democracy. My clients' cartoons... The statute, the statute also refers to obstructing recruitment and enlist, enlistment, uh, um, and, and does not the cartoon conscription, conscription um, deter enlistment? Was it not intended to deter enlistment? Your Honor, my clients newspaper, circular, is a discussion of satirical political uh, views. It's not, it's, it, let me contrast it with this. My client did not go down to the lines outside the recruitment center and urge people to resist the draft. He did not walk down with a jacket with an Anglo-Saxon crude verb telling people to resist the draft. My client did not do anything directed at the troops at all. All we're trying to do is mail our circular through the mail to the general public. So, so Your Honor, not intended to incite anyone to violate the draft. I'm sorry, Your Honor. Judge Hand, actually, he didn't. It's a little odd that he never used the word, not only First Amendment, he didn't use the word Constitution. Uh, something I know by using a contraption that will be invented 50 years from now called Westlaw. But, but in any event, uh, uh, and I, I wonder about whether he thought he was actually, whether this, he was deciding whether, not whether, he, he was, of course, um, employing as a matter of, 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 of interpretation, First Amendment doctrine as he understood it. That, but, but I want to, the reason I say that, and the reason I think it's important in this case, is because it brings up the very difficult question here of to what extent do we owe deference uh, to the uh, 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 to the post office, and because if there's two ways of looking at this, are we not supposed to look at it, say, okay, there are two ways. We don't agree with the postmaster, but uh, we defer to. And, and let me just add to Judge Sachs' question. Um, he made it very clear that his reasoning was not based on the freedom of the press. He said, it may be that Congress may forbid the mails to any matter that tends to discourage the successful prosecution of the war. It may be that the fundamental personal rights of the individual must stand in abeyance, even including the right of the freedom of the press, though that is not here in question. Your Honor, I think the best way to understand what Judge Hand did is that he construed the statute in line with the Constitution. He avoided the serious First Amendment problems that would arise if you could ban the mailing of materials as tepid. And while I wouldn't call my client's material pablum, it is mild. It is not incitement to obstruction of the draft. So, Your Honor, I think the best thing that, the best way of understanding what Judge Han did is he avoided the serious First Amendment questions that would arise if you found these cartoons and these articles celebrating conscientious objection and giving tribute to Alexander Berkman and Emma Goldman. If you can find that these articles are non-mailable in violation of the Espionage Act, 
then that would be unconstitutional. So I think he correctly reads the statute not to forbid those things. Now, Judge Chen, obviously you're correct. The statute doesn't just bar false statements, and we can all agree Judge Hand was right that these were not false statements or reports. These are expressions of opinion, not false statements of facts, and certainly not believed to be false by those who spoke them. So put Clause 1 of Section 3 aside. Even if we turn to the part of the statute that requires... Section, yeah. section 3 is the problematic section. Yes, Your Honor. With respect to obstruction of, the, of recruitment, obstruction of the draft. So let me first try to defend Judge Hand's decision. And then if you disagree, I'd like to propose that I win even under my learned adversary's so-called clear and present danger test. To begin with Judge Hand's opinion, he correctly said that in a free society in which democratic authority derives its support from the agreement of the people and not dominion over them, in that society there must be breathing room for free expression. There must be an opportunity for people to express even in harsh terms, invective, propaganda, their disagreement with the government. And yes, that must exist even during times of war. Abraham Lincoln, quoted eloquently by my learned friend, spoke quite vehemently against the Spanish-American War. A later young senator from Illinois who would go on to become president spoke quite vehemently against a war he opposed in the Middle East. So the, the ability to criticize government, even in times of war, is crucial. And if you have too restrictive an approach to freedom of speech, that breathing room will be extinguished. So, Your Honor, what the, argu the argument is that um, this doesn't prevent your clients from speaking. It, it simply um, eliminates their ability to mail the magazines. And, and as, as the record shows, they found other ways to distribute. Your Honor, in fact, if uh, my client can't take advantage of second-class mailing privileges, the masses will not be published. As Judge Sack rightly pointed out, there aren't alternative means of communication other than the mails. The Internet hasn't been invented yet. And because uh, it, it, this effectively is censorship, effectively is silencing, I think you need to read the statute narrowly. Now, Your You're Honor. That the, the risk that the masses may go out of circulation, may go out of existence, is something that should be viewed as more important to this court than the risk that we might lose the war. Not at all, Your Honor. Two things. First, we concede that if my client had directly incited obstruction of the draft, it could be punished and it could be deemed non-mailable. We concede that. This is not that case. As John Stuart Mill wrote in On Liberty, it's one thing to say corn dealers are starvers of the poor, that's protected. It's another thing to say it to an angry mob outside the corn dealer's house, but my clients were not engaged in inciting an angry mob. They were not engaged in words as direct triggers to action. They were engaged in what you might call, as Judge Hand put it, keys to persuasion. And there's a constitutional difference between directly counseling law violation on the one hand, which we admit could be punished, and on the other hand, just trying to encourage people to think maybe conscientious objectors have something so good say, to be said to about them. To somebody, to say to somebody, um, the history of this kind, we would still be a British colony if the people had not had the courage of their convictions to stand up to oppression. Uh, 
and this much of the greatness of this country is based on the courage of people. Only cowards will refuse to act by their principles. You're saying that cannot, that is not incitement, that is just talking history, talking abstract values. It cannot have any, any effect on, on, on people's behavior? Well, Your Honor, it could be said that every idea is an incitement. Mm -hmm. And that every expression. I'm talking about these ideas here. Why didn't these ideas call upon people, express the, the view that people should refuse to? I mean, it calls the, the enlistment slavery. The, and it's well established slavery, bad thing, bad thing, morally, uh, morally reprehensible. Nobody should cooperate with slavery. Uh, this is what the draft is. How can that be viewed as not? as not encouragement not to cooperate with the draft. Your Honor, it is encouragement, but it's not directly counseling law, imminent lawless words. actions. Those are just words. Well, Your Honor, I think... It's indirectly. Why should... Indir and here's the answer, Your Honor. If you go after any expression which could indirectly, through mental processes, cause someone to want to emulate a draft resistor... We're not talking about anyone. We're talking about this one. These words, like the words in your hypothetical, are not enough to satisfy the constitutional restraints on Congress and on the postmaster, because you could... Because why? Because why? Two reasons, Your Honor. First of all, we think that Judge Hand was correct, that you need a hard, objective, qualitative test that distinguishes triggers to action from keys to persuasion, words of opinion from actual counseling of lawless action. Yelling at the corn why? mob outside. Why? The, why, why? Should, why should we require that? Because of the great principle of self-government that our First Amendment protects. We differ from the dictatorial nations of the world and the monarchy from which we escaped because we have a government in which the will of the people through their voluntary support is how we govern. Government is derived from the will of the people to support it, not from the suppression of speech. And in fact, nothing could be... Does it not elevate form of a substance if we, if we are, are, are looking... Um, if we require the literal words as opposed to what the natural effect is? Fair enough, Your Honor. And I'd like to suggest as an alternative, if you disagree with Judge Hand, I still respectfully request that the court affirm on the alternative ground that the masses does not pose a clear and present danger to the war effort. Well, what does it have to be a clear and present danger of? A clear and present danger of what? A clear and present danger of a gravity of evil uh, of a danger to our society so great that discounted by its improbability, it is uh, something that the government may support. There's precedent for that. I mean, if there's a clear and present danger, if there's a clear and present danger that the government will get less cooperation, less submission to the draft than it would have otherwise, why doesn't that clear? Why does it have to be a clear and present danger of a total catastrophe? If the government is entitled to have universal cooperation with a law that requires submission to the draft, why isn't it entitled to that? And why isn't clear and present danger satisfied by words that would interfere with the government achieving that? I mean, it's like saying, as long as you don't take away all my property, if you take away 12% of my property, that's that's, that's to be disregarded. Your, um, Your Honor, two, two points. First, 
We don't dispute here that government has the power to stop action and conduct that impairs the war effort. If there are actually people going down to draft lines at the recruitment center and hauling men off. Words can be equivalent to action. Words can be triggers to action, but we must act slowly. Treated legally as though they were close enough. Your Honor, I think what I'm, what I hope that this court will see as a virtue in Judge Hand's opinion is that he reminded us that expression can have a quality that must be protected for the purposes of self-government that I described before, even if it might have some causal tendency, some bad tendency as my... The question then is, I mean, the problem, like so yeah. many cases we hear, is you're both right. That is to say, of course, we shouldn't shut down all speech because some speech might end up, uh, th that destroys democracy, as you said just now. On the other hand, the, there are, there, we all agree, I think we have to, that there's some speech that, uh, uh, that can be shut down and it depends on the circumstances. In war, it's different. In the middle of a hurricane, it's different. We all agree on that. The question is where we draw the line. We have to, in each case, we, the tension is there. The question in each case, how do we draw that line? Your Honor, again, two answers. First, I respectfully urge you to affirm Judge Hand's Mass's decision in which he said that you draw the line by the qualitative nature of the utterance. Look to see what did the speaker say. Did the speaker say, it is your duty and it is in your interest to resist the draft, conscientious, you, you should be a conscientious objector now, tear up your bat draft card, burn the draft card on the steps of the courthouse? Any courageous person would not cooperate with the draft, would stand up to its principles, and only cowards would subject, would, would, would cooperate with unlawful, tyrannical, uh, abusive governmental exercise of power. And Your Honor, I would say that that is not enough to satisfy this statute. It is not willfully counseling obstruction of the draft, but, but, and the difference is, we want to allow people to state their opposition to government, including even in wartime. We want to allow people to celebrate conscientious objectors as heroic young men, even in wartime. And we, when I was a child, a, a child who had been subjected by, by some bullies to, uh, or nasty, nasty other other children to verbal abuse, their parents would say to them as, as solace and comfort, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And no words were ever less satisfactory or less true than those. Yes. Uh, are those your argument? Uh, uh, your Honor, I do believe that you should distinguish between words and conduct and that you should give more latitude for words than conduct here. By the way, if you, know, you know Judge Laval's friend is still in jail from having said what he said? <laughs> Does he need a lawyer? <laughs> the, uh, I just want to go back to this. Let, let's, let's be clear here. We're not objecting to solicitation statutes. A word that says, go kill somebody for me, the fact that it's words doesn't take it out of the criminal law. We're not objecting to conspiracy statutes. The fact that you agree to commit a murder or another crime, the fact that it's words doesn't take it out of the criminal law. So what's the test? I mean, how do we decide which words uh, violate the statute and which words do not? The 
way this statute is written, you should affirm Judge Hand and say these words do not violate the statute, understood in light of the First Amendment, because they do not constitute direct counsel telling you it is your duty and in your interest to violate the law. It would be different if we had published a publication and sent it out, handed it out to troops on recruiting lines, said you are being sent off as cannon fodder as to the slaughter of the big banks and magnets. We didn't do that. My, my, my client has a cartoon satirically depicting big business as happy once Congress has declared war. It shows, war. Uh, it depicts a, a body of a child lying in front of a, a cannon, I think. But isn't that the equivalent of what you just described? Well, Your Honor, it's describing it in an artistic way that allows the reader to make a conclusion that, in fact, conscription is the enemy of democracy and labor and the scourge of mothers because they'll lose their children to war. But those are a set of thoughts that are within permissible range of viewpoints in disagreement with a war. Help me with this. You and I may say, in my view, your adversary are both a little sliding between it being a First Amendment case in which case the First Amendment means whatever, whatever the Supreme Court says it means, but uh, it has a, uh, it, that's what we're looking at now, the Supreme Court. Or we're saying, and I think this is what Han was saying, excuse me, Judge Han was saying, was uh, uh, that, no, 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 I, I'm informed by the First Amendment, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm doing no more than using that information. I'm, I'm, I'm deciding what Congress must have meant when it said this in light of First Amendment principles. And that brings me back to the point of beginning, which is if Judge Han was doing what he was doing, which was a sophisticated uh, First Amendment uh, enlightened uh, a reading of the statute, why do we not? It's a statute reading, why, why do we not defer to the postmaster? You're in just as good a position as the postmaster to interpret the statute in light of the First Amendment. There's no issue of administrative expertise here. You can read the words of the masses just as well as the postmaster. You can read the words of the masses just as well as you could read a contract or a statute. The postmaster had assistance from the attorney general and the uh, um, judge advocate general. Your Honor, it's all the more important that you give de novo review here and you decide through the neutral eyes of the courts and not the, uh, the zealous eyes of the administrative and executive branch to decide whether the statute is being violated. There are three branches. Congress wrote the law. It wrote it narrowly. It didn't write a seditious libel law. It wrote a law about people who willfully obstruct the draft, people who willfully cause insubordination. Those Lang that, that language of, of the statute is yours independently to interpret. Don't defer to the Postmaster General. And the language of my client's publication is something you are in the best position to read and compare to the statute. It well, does the Supreme Court in, in the Brandenburg case um, uh, took the position that courts shouldn't even concern themselves with clear and present danger. They should merely look at the words, to the words actually in sight as opposed to merely encourage or merely merely advocate. Um, and if they don't actually incite, no matter how clear and present the danger, no matter how clear it is that they will bring on disaster, doesn't matter. Are you advocating that we should adopt that position? 
Your Honor, we clearly went under Brandenburg because our, we were not aiming at imminent lawless action. Is that a sensible position? Is that a position that a, that a, that our, that a court in, in this nation should adopt? Your Honor, we think that there are either of two positions you should adopt. You should adopt hand a bold, objective, qualitative test that looks to the nature of the speech and won't be Sent, won't allow juries or judges to be biased in looking into the motive of the speaker or likely affect very manipulable standards that Tom, Dick, and Harry DJ could decide to go with in any direction he or she wanted. Those, you should not go with a test that's that malleable. You should go with Han's test. It's qualitative. It looks at the language. No direct counsel to violate the law. Speaker wins. End of case. But if you go with a test that looks to consequences. Then, Your Honor, we think the most important test is that you must really demand an imminent likelihood of lawless action. Go back to the corn dealer. It's imminent likelihood of any lawless action? Or no, Your Honor, serious. Catastrophic lawless action. Serious lawless action, Your Honor, but I don't think it has to be stopping everybody in the draft. It could be stopping a large percentage of the people in the draft, to go back to your 12% example, but it needs to be imminent danger of inciting lawless action. That's what Brandenburg will hold. Uh, and, 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 and it will hold that because imminence is important here. Corn dealers are starvers and the poor is different when it's sent it through the mail to a reader who might read it on a train going on vacation than it is when it's said to an angry mob outside the corn dealer's house. And that imminence requirement obviously defends my client. My client clearly wins under Brandenburg because there is no incitement of imminent lawless action. How do we interpret uh, Judge Hand's repeated statement that we, you, we're talking now about the postmaster, which is Article 2, right, the executive. Uh, Judge Hand said, no, you can go back to Congress. There's nothing wrong with a statute that did what, what these people are telling me it does. They go back and, and say this is uh, unlawful and we'll defer to that. To there we respectfully part company with Judge Hand, Your Honor. We think if Congress were to make a statute that says merely having a bad tendency to encourage a seditious disposition somewhere in the nation, if that were passed by Congress, it would plainly violate the First but then, Amendment. But, then, and but you would, then you would have to bring in and actually apply uh, uh, the First Amendment rather than to say that what you were doing was, was, uh, um, was uh, uh, interpreting the statute. Yes, Your Honor, and if you want to today announce that the First Amendment bars the prosecution of seditious libel, you could have an occasion for dancing in the streets long before 1967, when, you, when it will be done in the future. And it will be an occasion for dancing in the streets because... Go ahead. Oh. <laughs> go ahead. But, yes. but, Your Honor, it was a long dance. No. Your Honor, it was the, the, what, I want to, what I want to suggest to you is my, I should win easily. You should affirm because the statute as written does not extend to the mere expression of tepid opinion and pablum in favor of conscientious objectors and sentimental peons to the nobility of jailed conscientious objectors and references to conscientious objectors jailed in England. That comes nowhere close to the kind of encouragement, counsel, direct counsel to violate the law. But if Congress, if you were to interpret this statute... You claim that, as you that the position you're advocating now is a position that, um, that prevails under the law as Judge Hand faced it in 1917 as opposed to benefiting from subsequent 
jurisprudence? Where's the authority in 1917 for that for that position? Your, your Honor, you... Judge Hand didn't, himself didn't claim it. Correct, Your Honor, which is why I'd go back to the simplest way for you to affirm and rule for the injunction in my client's favor. The statute looks for willful false statements. None here. These are statements of opinion. The statute extends to willful... That's not the branch of the statute that is... Um, that the uh, uh, postmaster's argument is strongest on. That's fine, Your Honor. Even going to the two other branches, willfully causing insubordination, disloyalty, mutiny, or refusal of duty in the U.S. military, we're not even close here, Your Honor. We're not even close not. to willfully... Still not on the, on the part that is strongest for your opposition. Your Honor, willfully obstructing the recruiting or enlistment service of the U.S. to the injury of the service or of the U.S. Your Honor, what the statute says is obstruct, willfully obstruct. It doesn't say willfully cause people to be sympathetic to conscientious objectors in a way that might lead you to think they should be held up to honor rather than obloquy that might made you vote against the incumbent government. That's it, too indirect, Your Honor. I'm sorry, Your Honor. What does obstruct mean? Obstruct means you go down to the you go down to the recruiting line and you pull guys forcibly off the line and say you're not going, or you tell them to their face, go be drafted and you will burn in hell or other things of that nature. This is not that case. This is, it, it, this is a, a, a set of publications that want to work on the consciences of a nation so that they can govern themselves. It is not, nowhere close to the kind of language that would be covered here. So, Your Honor, you need not reach the First Amendment question here. But if you do, then I respectfully submit you should announce that a, a statute that prohibits taking your government into obloquy or contempt standing up to the executive branch of government. If a statute ever is interpreted to go so far, then you as the courts must uphold the First Amendment limits on that statute and First Amendment limits on the ability of any administrator, including the postmaster, to impose that kind of silencing on speech. So, Your Honor, if you were to adopt a clear and present danger test or a Brandenburg test, I would ask that you make it a requirement of real causation, not tendencies but actually imminent likelihood that you're going to incite a mob to riot. Not some meeting out in a dark wood at night that nobody will even see in which you say things against the, 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 the social peace. Not statements of opinion or cartoons that may make people angry but aren't inciting a lynch mob. If you limit the legitimate realm of government suppression of speech, to those speeches that really do incite a mob to imminent violence, that will be vindicating what the framers meant by the ban on, uh, on, on seditious libel prosecutions. Now, Your Honor, even if Judge Hand were to someday think that of a different test, maybe someday he gets elevated to your court and has a bust on his honor in your court, and maybe he someday would come up with a different test in which he says that you should not suppress speech unless the gravity of evil, discounted by its improbability, is such as to justify the suppression of speech. And if Judge Hand were to invent that test and you were to agree with it, then you certainly should not suppress my client's speech. Because the gravity of evil here, obviously suppressing the war effort, is a grave evil. I don't discount that. But the improbability of its success, my clients had cartoons. 
that were subject to different interpretations. My client had a poem about Emma Goldman. My client had an article about British conscientious objectors languishing in jail. That is so far from being probably likely to impede in any material way the war effort of the United States, that if you were to punish these poor and puny anonymities, these silly leaflets by unknown men, and say that they're bringing down the world, then you would be doing the First Amendment a great disservice. Holmes's father wrote a poem that stopped the scrapping of the Constitution. Just a poem. Okay. <laughs> so, and Your Honor? <laughs> it, it shouldn't be suppressed. It shouldn't be suppressed, and neither should the masses. I respectfully request that you affirm the injunction on either the ground hand wrote or the back to the future ground I, ground I gave you of what hand would write much later. Either way, this speech should not be suppressed. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Abrams, you have some rebuttal time. Uh, Counsel, quite correctly, has uh, articulated what Judge Hand required in his test, the direct advocacy of illegal conduct. That requirement, leaving out anything indirect, leaving out almost any nuance uh, at all uh, in, in enforcement, would, would get uh, Mark Antony off the hook. Uh, for every time he talked about Brutus being an honorable man, uh, he was cutting harder into him in the most indirect but most powerful way. I think that that's true of the actual articles in this case. Forget the poem, the uh, cartoons. No, I think the actual articles are more direct than, than that. I, I'm, you think they're more? It would be more effective if, if, if uh, Ant, uh, whoever was uh, Anthony, Anthony yeah. was, was going there and instead he used this kind of speech rather than said, let me not stir you up to such a sudden flood of mutiny. I thought he did much better by putting it the way he did it. It was much stronger, much clearer that what he was doing was So he did, and he would not be covered by Judge Hand's test because it was not direct advocacy. What I'm saying is that the hand test... Nothing but direct advocacy. It was just done with a, with a sense of, of irony and knowing the audience to whom he was speaking. I think to say that using the words, he's an honorable man, he's an honorable man, is direct advocacy is, how shall I say it? I may not appear before you again, a perversion of the English language. <laughs> Oh I, oh, I hope you do. I, uh, no, but, but that's, it's not just he's an honorable man. If that's all he said, of course you're right. But the whole point is that, that he knew exactly. Do you think Shakespeare thought it was just an accident that they went off and, and, and killed Brutus? Or, or that that's exactly what he was trying to do, literally trying to do? Yes, he was the wily agitator that Lincoln was talking about, and it would not meet the are these, test. Are these people wily agitators? The, 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 are, are they? I don't, I don't know how to characterize them. I think they believe what they meant, uh, but uh, were they wily agitators in the sense that 
They were hoping, expecting who reads that this magazine. I'm who, reads, who reads this magazine? Is it going to reach anyone who's in the position of just a thinking small about slice of New Yorkers? Uh, uh, <laughs> now, uh, uh, first, it's not on the record, uh, um, but uh, look, it is probably, certainly for the most part, people that agree with them. Uh, I mean, that is the lot of publications like, like this. But, but the risk of publications like this, at least in a wartime context, uh, is that it will spread ideas. I mean, we like the ideas, that ideas are taken seriously and that they spread. Uh, and that's the sort of danger here. Uh, finally, uh, just a final word about uh, Judge Hand. Uh, his First Amendment devotion lessened through the years. The, the ultimate test cited by counsel uh, is one which much more benefits our side, I think, well, that's than, uh, getting than hers. With his first test, I think. Yeah. Well, yeah, look, his, his, his first test tries to incorporate, I think this is also a response to, to Judge Sack. It, it's hard not to think he's trying to incorporate First Amendment uh, notions uh, and chose for perhaps strategic reasons uh, or perhaps because he thought there were no, no votes or the like uh, or perhaps he thought the Supreme Court in 1917 would never agree with that. Uh, but that doesn't make him right either. I mean, it makes him, to use another Shakespearean word, ambitious. Uh, 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 he, he was changing law with this opinion. And, and I do believe he, w he was pushing the language, straining the language in a way in which if all we were talking about was the language of this statute, it is, it is very hard to sustain what he did, and I think we know that by seeing how far he had to go to move away from the language that was used. Uh, a final thought then, uh, we all agree that, that in terms of answering broad questions, as to how to reconcile uh, the claims of national security and the need of free expression, that uh, words are helpful, but don't ultimately often carry the day. Legal tests are useful, but are very difficult to apply in different circumstances. Uh, the worse the circumstances are, the more dangerous the circumstances are. What do you say the clear and present danger must be of if we were to adopt the clear and present danger test? As, a, as applied to clear and uh, present this case, danger of what? I would say impairing the war effort. Any impairment of the war effort? Well, impairment of some significance, uh, not trivial, but, but not necessarily winning or losing the war. But, but, but impairing the war effort is a strong enough interest 
and a dangerous enough result that in time of war, it's not too much to ask that the price tag, and it is one, be paid of some lesser amount of protection for speech. Thank you, Your Honor. May, may, may I ask you, a, I'm getting back to Mark Antony for a second. It seemed uh, perverse, I think is what you said. If, if the presider was Mark Antony and he said, oh, Mr. Abrams, your red light is on, but please go on speaking. Do you think he would really be asking you to speak or to sit down? <laughs> Which of you shall I assume is sitting in the center? There he is. I believe Judge Chin means what he says. <laughs> yeah, thank you. And you're going to disobey. <laughs> that, that concludes our re-argument. How about a round of applause for our two wonderful advocates? So we have a, a, a few minutes for some observations from the court, and we're going to begin with uh, Judge Sack. Actually, the first thing for me to say is that we are enormously grateful and admiring of Judge Chin, who, when our presider uh, uh, had a certain medical problems, stepped in at the last minute within the last week. And I don't know who, maybe Mark Antony would have been sitting, no, but it's, it's really, and he's sitting this week, I, he's, he's at my, right, he's at the top of my pantheon of, of heroes, and we're, we're, we're all really very grateful to him. Uh, let me make two points, one of which I discussed at NYU a little while ago, but uh, the, the masses, you know, great case, we're here, we're talking about it, great, great lawyers, uh, and yet the masses as a case is, is virtually unknown to the courts and the boy, you never read it, did you? Come on. Uh, I didn't and I was in the business I, uh, until six or eight weeks ago. Uh, and yet it's well known and celebrated by scholars and, and, and we're doing that to, today. And I, I wanted to Westlaw, which 50 or 60 years from now, you know what I'm talking about, and I found that in the more than 100 years since the masses was decided by the learned hand, it's been cited by federal courts 12 times and by state courts four times. Well, of course, it was reversed by us. And you can, listening to Judge Laval, you can see why. But, <laughs> but it, was, it was reversed by us. So, well, how about our reversal, Judge Rogers? The Second Circuit decision reversing it has been cited in state and federal opinions only 22 times. So that's 38. I thought, gee, what shall I compare? Well, you know, is that a lot? Is this as little as it seems to me? Well, being uh, uh, narcissistic, I, uh, just random, I took the first opinion that I ever wrote for this court. And it was called, uh, it, was, it affirmed a district court's judgment of conviction based on an allegedly flawed plea allocution. Name of it was United States versus Westcott. It, one special thing about it was we were affirming and I was writing something that, uh, had, that had been an opinion uh, by a district court named Sonia Sotomayor 
And that was the sliver of time when I was grading her papers rather than her grading mine. But that's, that's, but this little non-opinion non opinion uh, has been cited 40 times, two more than them, two masses. And uh, I, I find that sort of interesting. And I think the answer is, or the beginning of an answer to that, is that uh, uh, the masses is really uh, the beginning. It, it, it's, it's, it's central to what my, my uh, uh, friend, the Columbia law professor, uh, uh, Vince Blasi, calls in his case book. It's, the, it's not the law of the First Amendment. It's the ideas of the First Amendment that it's about. My opinion was not the history of any ideas at all, but it probably had a couple of phrases that were black letter law that people relied upon. And it seems to me that the more I look at this and, and hear from other people about it, it, this case is important not as a legal case, but it's kind of the beginning of the exchange of ideas about this precise subject among Han and Holmes you know, the great dissent, uh, Brandeis concurring in Whitney versus California, Colorado, and uh, actually in Professor Zechariah Chaffee. And it includes a wonderful story that many of you probably know about uh, how they did business then. A important uh, part of this history was Hand running into Justice Holmes on a train up to Boston, right, and discussing the question of, of, of uh, uh, protection, constitutional protection for freedom speech. So I think it's very important, but it's important because of who Handy was, where we all were, who he discussed it with. It was the kind of the, the it was the beginning of all this great stuff that we cite all the time, uh, including Brandenburg for better or for worse. But that's what it is. It's the beginning of the idea of, uh, to somebody who was central to the conversation. Second and in this case, uh, I'm well, second and last, but in this case, I, I'm uh, interested in my friend uh, uh, Floyd on this. There's something about when you go through this case, there's something to me that's sort of a little reminiscent of the Pentagon Papers case. Uh, they both had the same drive, the same drama to them to some extent, not exactly alike, but one was 54 years after the other. And uh, the, this masses was, the Espionage Act was passed on June 15th. We had just, June 15th, we had just entered the war in April. It, hand, uh, the stay of hand was July 24th, which was shortly thereafter. It was by November that this court, being much more, uh, uh, much quicker than we are nowadays, by November, early November, we had published an opinion and decided a case reversing Judge, uh, Judge Hand's decision. And it's, it's in tone, I, as I say, uh, I think it's similar to the Pentagon Papers litigation in the sense of the, the, the driving force of events, the world events there was the Vietnam War, and uh, which you may recall we thought was terribly important at the time, First World War. And as, as is, I think, well known, it, it began with the publication of the Times, it was a Sunday, no? On June 13th, 1972, uh, with the, uh, 71, 
uh, with the publication of the first uh, um, uh, part, the first installment of the Pentagon Papers. Six days later, Judge Gerfine refused to enjoin further publication. And finally, June 30th, what's that, 17 days? 17 days from the time it was published, the Supreme Court came out with a, with a, uh, uh, with a result. What also strikes me, two other things finally strike me about this. The first thing is I think, disagree with me, Floyd could certainly disagree with me. To me, the great, if you look at the first part of this, the, 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 uh, the masses uh, and all that surrounded it, I think whether you agree with it or not, that, that what's memorable is Han's uh, um, uh, opinion. I mean, it's really remarkable. It really is worth talking about and thinking about. And uh, so it's, it's a great statement. And, uh, but uh, gee, do you remember Judge Gerfine's? Unbelievable, he, first week on the bench, he had several days in which to do it. If you haven't recently read it, it's like, like the Jews on Passover, you read it, the, the Haggadah once a year, you ought to read, you ought to read Judge Gerfine's opinion. Once he, it's simply, uh, I find, me, I find it breathtaking. But last thing I will point out, these two truly great uh, works of, 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 of jurisprudence, each of them was reversed by the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. Judge Laval. Uh, this is a great book. Tony Lewis's book, you probably all know it. You're all First Amendment buffs. Fabulous book, Make No Law by Anthony Lewis. Uh, one of the things in it that totally captivated me uh, when I read it a number of years ago was the tale that Judge Sack um, uh, adverted to very briefly of this chance meeting uh, of on a train between Washington and New York a little bit after Holmes, a little bit after Hand wrote the masses opinion and was reversed. He, by total chance, ran into Holmes on a train between Washington and New York, and they talked about the First Amendment, and Hand pumped the view that he had aired in the masses, and Holmes answered, I don't quite get what, you, what you're aiming at. Uh, and they corresponded for a while afterwards, and little by little, uh, Hand's influence got under the skin of Holmes, and the course of First Amendment history uh, changed dramatically uh, for the better. Um, now, um, one of the things we've talked about extensively, uh, I, one thing I didn't suspect when I read it in this book, I hadn't read the masses' opinion until I read it in preparation for this event. And um, uh, this book treats it as, and I think most people view it, as a First Amendment opinion. But I was stunned to find, reading the masses' opinion, as we said repeatedly during the course of the argument, that it's a, a very sly opinion. Uh, uh, a hand knew perfectly well that there was no precedent that supported his view of the First Amendment. And so in discussing all this business about the marketplace of ideas and how important ideas were and they should be allowed to flourish, and so he never 
never suggests that this is in any way dependent on the First Amendment, because the First Amendment was about nothing but prior restraint. And for reasons that are not all that easy to understand, keeping the masses out of postal delivery was not viewed as a prior restraint. Um, so it was very, very sly. I mean, it's perfectly clear that he was uh, uh, not being altogether candid because when he met Holmes on the train, he was pumping the same ideas as ideas of the understanding of the First Amendment. But he very slyly avoided attributing and just talked about the marketplace of ideas. It's, a, it's very interesting. Anyway, it's been a fascinating argument. We had great advocates before us. and. Um, um, uh, these cases are hard. So just a couple of comments. Uh, first of all, I, I'm, I'm delighted that I was asked to do this. It was fun to have two wonderful lawyers uh, arguing in front of us, and I don't have to worry about deciding uh, the case. Um, I also was unfamiliar with uh, the, the Masses uh, case. I'm not surprised that it hasn't been cited more. Fortunately, the govern government doesn't often try to suppress poetry and uh, cartoons. Um, I have become a big fan of, of history uh, over the years. My wife and I were in Washington over the weekend doing um, a presentation on the Korematsu case. And there we were talking about military necessity and the hardships of war in the context of uh, Japanese Americans being sent to uh, uh, internment camps. Um, and, but it is, is wonderful to be able to go back and, and look at these historic cases, and I do think there is much uh, to learn from them. A special thanks to the United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit for hosting the re-argument of Masses v. Patton earlier this month. The event was organized by the court in association with the First Amendment Salons, the Floyd Abrams Institute for Freedom of Expression at Yale Law School, and the Committee on Media Law of the New York State Bar Association. If you're interested in watching a video version of the re-argument, it can be found on FIRE's YouTube page at youtube.com slash thefireorg, or by visiting the Special Collections section of the First Amendment Library on FIRE's website located at thefire.org. A special thanks again to Ron Collins for sitting down with me today to discuss this case. His new book with David Scover is The Judge, 26 Machiavellian Lessons. This podcast is hosted, produced, and recorded by me, Nico Perino, and edited by Aaron Reese. The audio from the re-argument was provided to us by the fine people at the Second Circuit. To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash freespeechtalk or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast. You can also email us, feedback at sotospeak at thefire.org or call in a question for a future show at 215-315-0100. As I noted at the beginning of this podcast, if you enjoyed this episode, please, please, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. Reviews, as I mentioned, help us attract new listeners to this show. Now, until next time, I want to thank you all again for listening, and happy holidays. Happy holidays.